This evening's reading is from Luke chapter 17, verse 20, to chapter 18, verse 8. And that's on page 1051 of the Church Bibles. That's Luke chapter 17, verse 20, to chapter 18, verse 8. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It would be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. But let me pray first of all. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now the last time that people seriously thought that the world was coming to an end was in October 1962. Earlier in the year, the United States of America had sponsored an invasion of Cuba called the Bay of Pigs. It failed. It was a fiasco. The president of the Soviet Union, the forerunner of uh, Russia, um, Nikita Khrushchev, 
subsequently, in support of Fidel Castro's communist Cuba, agreed to deploy Soviet missiles on the island, just a few hundred miles from the American mainland. The United States spy plane spotted missile bunkers being constructed and ships carrying nuclear missiles were spotted on their way to Cuba. President Kennedy launched a blockade of Cuba. Khrushchev called this an act of aggression propelling humankind into the abyss of a world nuclear missile war. The world held its breath. This was a game with high stakes. Were we heading for Armageddon, a nuclear holocaust? Well, being eight at the time, this all passed me by. I was playing football. In fact, I might have even had those football boots that you nailed the studs in. They were pretty lethal. But I think about that time, I, they might have started having rubber ones. No, boots, that is. No, studs, that is. But anyway, I was uh, in a class of 44 in an insulation-free, that really is just a sort of classy way of saying there wasn't any insulation, in these huts which had been built just after the Second World War to accommodate the post-war baby boom. You could get four sweets for a farthing. That meant that for one old pea, you could get 16. So for one pence in today's money, you could get 32 sweets. You know, well, nostalgia time for me. Now, the most interesting thing, though, in those days was that Spurs won the FA Cup two years in a row, which is why all my friends supported Spurs. The, uh, the, most, the impending end of the world had passed me by. I have no recollection of it whatsoever. I carried on my life of eating, drinking, playing football, and going to school. And so it will be when the end of the world really does come to an end, as Jesus warns. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day looked forward to the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth. They were aware that they were God's chosen people. They had had a remarkable history. They had much to be grateful for. They had been selected. They had been preserved. They had been restored numerous times after they'd taken God for granted and in their complacency sinned grievously against him and got themselves into sort of deep political trouble and exile and stuff. And they had in recent centuries been suffering for their sins. Instead of being a strong nation with a wise king, a country that others were meant to look up to and to come to for wisdom, they were an occupied people. After they'd been released from captivity in uh, Persia in um, 439 BC, they were soon conquered by the armies of Alexander the Great and were ruled by the Greeks for a couple of centuries. And then the Roman legions marched in and took over. Even their puppet king was not a Jew. Herod the Great was an Idumean and a lackey of the Romans. They suffered injustice. They believed in the promise of further restoration and the establishment of the kingdom of God under God's Messiah. So quite naturally, when this new rabbi 
Jesus quite spectacularly appeared on the scene. He attracted their attention. They came to quiz him. Was he likely to be the Messiah expected? And they wanted to know when the kingdom of God is going to come, verse 20. And they wanted to know where it was going to appear, verse 27. So when? Well, not by their trying to work it out with their careful observations, or as the English Standard Version translates it, signs to be observed. Its arrival was not going to be spectacular. It was not going to light up the sky. It was not going to be some kind of uprising that swept across the Middle East of the day. Nor would listening to the speculations of people who say, ah, here it is, and there it is, that wasn't going to help in any way, because they were all ignorant. They didn't know. Then Jesus gives the answer. The kingdom of God is within you, verse 21, or among you as the NIV footnote has it, in which the context favours. The kingdom of God, in other words, Jesus was saying, has already arrived in the person of me. I'm King Jesus. I'm the Messiah. And I'm right here among you. It's true that the kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus in the lives of the believers, but, of course, here he's talking to the Pharisees, who weren't believers. And here, of course, the disciples who are listening to him won't have the kingdom of God within them until Pentecost, when Jesus' presence among them is replaced by his presence within them. So the answer to their question, when will the kingdom of God come, was certainly not what they were expecting. The arrival of the kingdom of God is going to be in two stages. Then, in history, with the arrival of Jesus, and in the future, the future for us too, when there will be a cosmic return of Jesus. So the Pharisees, at that point in time, needed to think about Jesus' first coming, observe what he does, assess what he's like, and listen to what he says. Because if they don't accept him as the appointed king on his first visit, they'll never be in a position to eagerly look for his second visit when he comes in glory, when his kingdom, his new heaven and new earth, will be established forever. Many years ago, soon after these facilities were opened in 19, well, the end of 95, beginning of 96, we planned a number of events. One particular event was to be a concert. But I wasn't able to confirm who was going to be performing until three weeks before. So six weeks before, when I was able to announce it, all I could say was, book the date, we're going to have a concert, most of you will want to come, it will be very easy to invite any friends to. Now, if you believed me, you'd have booked the date with a degree of, uh, you know, we don't overdo things, with a degree of modest anticipation. If you didn't believe me, if you thought that I was um, hyping everything up, you'd arrange for something else to do. 
and you'd have missed an evening with Sir Cliff Richard. You see, initial belief is crucial for final enjoyment. The Pharisees, well, most of them, were unable and unwilling to accept that in Jesus the king had come, and certainly not that he was going to return after his death. The disciples did accept that, although they found it hard to register quite what it meant. They had begun to recognize that the king had come, and so once they had seen the resurrected Jesus and then the ascended Jesus, they were able to look forward to his coming again in glory for the second time. Now this passage looks at several truths about his return, but first we must uh, look at what happens in the meantime between the first and the second comings. Speaking to his disciples, he says, they are going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but will not see it. In other words, they can't wait for such a time to arrive. They will long to see it, maybe because they will be having a hard time in the interval. After all, of the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around the Holy Land for three years, one would commit suicide, 10 would be martyred for their faith, only one, John, would die in old age. So we ask ourselves the question, do we find ourselves longing for the day when Jesus will establish for all to see his new kingdom here on earth? I suppose the disciples had the advantage of having been with him. And of course, we may not have experienced the adversity and persecution that they did. Maybe it's because our focus of our heart's desire is not upon life in the kingdom of heaven, but rather because it's quite comfortable for us and we don't face great adversity, our focus is still rather earthbound. So we don't long for it as much as they did or as much as we should. They are not listening to false alarms. There he is or here he is, following such exhortations will just lead us up the garden path. But don't worry, there's no chance of missing when Jesus comes again. It will be like an electric storm illuminating the night sky, verse 24. It will be like lightning flashing from one end of the sky to another. But back to the here and now. Before all that, Jesus has to complete his mission, verse 25. First, he must, the word means that it is necessary, suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He tells them here, in case they'd missed that bit, that it is coming soon. Remember, he wants his disciples to be with him after his second coming in glory, with the recreated universe, which will be free of sin and suffering. But to be free of sin, those who recognized him must put their trust in him for their future in order for their sin to be removed. And it's only through his suffering on the cross, the innocent suffering for the guilty, can God, the judge, forgive and accept them. After his death and resurrection and ascension, life will go on just as it did for me in 1962. 
and just as it does for most people today. But the last day, the day of judgment will come. Not knowing what will happen after death or not liking what they hear, people will prefer not to think about it. If the world is going to end, it won't be soon, they think. So they get on with life as they've always done. But it is coming. The day of the Lord will come. God will keep his promises. Like he did, Jesus says, in the days of Noah. God promised a flood to punish the rebellion and immorality of the people. But he chose to save Noah and his family by instructing Noah to build an ark, a floating zoo. And people, of course, laughed at Noah. What a ridiculous project. But the flood came. They perished. Noah and his family, though, were saved. Much the same happened in the days of Lot, who was a relative of Abraham, about 2000 BC. Sodom and Gomorrah, which are now thought to be on the northeastern side of the Dead Sea. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were to be destroyed. The cries of the innocence of that place had been heard by God, who pronounced judgment on them. There was an earthquake, most probably, on those two cities. Lot and his family had been warned to flee, but the inhabitants of those places carried on life as usual, eating, drinking, and by all accounts being pretty debauched. The judgment came, Lot was saved, the people perished. And that's what the second coming will be like. But it has been promised. God has a great track record of keeping his promises. It will be sudden. He says, if you're on the rooftop garden, don't go downstairs. Your belongings will be of no use to you. Similarly, if you're working in the fields, there's no need to go home to get your gear. Instead, look up. Your Lord is coming. To go back for things indicates, like Lot's wife, that your heart's desire is for the things of this life. Lot's wife looked back as they fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, an indication that her heart was there rather than on the promised land. And so she was punished by being turned into a pillar of salt. The day of the Lord will be selective. Jesus will take his own to himself. Two in a bed, one will be taken, one will be left. Two at work, one taken, one left. Only some will be saved, Jesus says. Well, that's the answer to when. As to where, verse 37, Jesus says, don't worry, there is no chance you are going to miss this. It will be obvious. Just like when you see vultures circling in the sky, you know that there is carrion, or there is a dead animal, in other words, below. Vultures very, very rarely attack anything that's living, unless, of course, they see you stumbling along a path and falling over. Then watch out. 
It's the same point as was made in verse 24, with lightning flashing across the sky. The first coming may have been somewhat under wraps. He came in human form and at a particular time and in a particular place, but his second coming will be truly cosmic. And now the parable of the persistent widow. Now Jesus is aware that there will be a time gap between his departure after his first coming and his arrival for his second coming. So he shares this parable, verse 1, with the people, quote, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. In other words, keep believing he is coming, pray towards that end, and you'll enjoy it when it does come. So in the parable, there is this miserable old judge. He doesn't fear God, who is the ultimate judge, to whom even judges will have to give an account. And he doesn't care much for human beings either. The widow, who like orphans and like the disabled, were amongst the most vulnerable and sadly despised by Jewish society. There was no one to speak up for her and protect her. People could take advantage of her in her weakness. So her only hope of justice is with the judge. So she makes her plea, give me justice against my adversary, she says. And she nags the judge to death, quite honestly. So he eventually makes his judgment and he decides for her and against her adversary. Now this is what's called the lesser to the greater argument. That's to say, if a lesser is true, then how much more the greater must be true? The comparison is between that of an unjust judge and God. If the lesser, the unjust judge, will grant justice, how much more just will be the action of a just God be greater? So don't lose heart because of the seeming delay. If an unjust judge finally grants a persistent widow's prayer for justice, then how much more will a just God hear the prayers of his chosen people, who may well be suffering like her unjustly? Now, to act quickly here means without unnecessary delay. From our perspective, it may seem like a long time between the first and the second coming. But of course, time means more time to repent and believe so that more people can enter into knowing Christ personally and sharing eternal life with him and so be saved on the final day in God's great act of mercy. Jesus says, verse 8, he looks forward to finding faith on earth. But will he? It is a challenge to his hearers to have faith that persists through all the difficulties and also to play their part in ensuring as many as possible will have uh, such faith and so be saved. So this parable teaches us both what to pray for and how to pray. We pray for the second coming and we pray persistently for it for the day of justice, when all those who have suffered at the hands of the wicked will get the justice that they deserve. And we pray that many people will come to believe in the God of justice, and we pray that we might persevere through any times of injustice.
and we pray persistently. So to summarize what we've learned here, we have Jesus himself is God's king, so the kingdom of God has come, and no one who rejects him will see the kingdom in any other form. But there is far more to the kingdom than what we see now, and Jesus will return in glory to bring the rescue to a final fulfillment for his followers. His return has several implications for our lives now. His disciples were to long for his return and to pray for it. But they must not be deceived by rumors of Jesus' return. When he does return, it will be obvious. No need to go after some kind of messianic cult or some kind of outfit that says it's going to happen on year X or whenever. Normal life will continue until he returns. That's to, be, that's to say there will be no kind of uh, signs to show that it's imminent. The signs that are mentioned are all rather too general to be able to be specific as to when he will come. But it is vital when he returns that his disciples do not look back longingly at this world, which is destined for destruction, but they should look forward to the new creation when there will be no more suffering, no more sin. At his return, only some will be saved, and those who are saved will not then be able to help others. God will not delay unnecessarily. In fact, any delay, though, is an act of mercy, so that more might take up his offer of salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armour of light, now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.